Welcome to Uncensored CMO. Now this week, we are doing a couple of special editions of the podcast. We are celebrating the fact that next week is MadFest and we are on the road to MadFest. So we thought we'd catch up with a couple of the speakers, find out a little bit about what we're going to be hearing next week. And my first guest is a returning guest to show, one of my favourites, the one, the only, the legend that is Rory Sutherland. Rory is always entertaining, always insightful and sometimes hard to stop. But anyway, that is Rory. So I've caught up with Rory to find out a little bit more about what's in his mind, what's going on in behavioural sciences, and to find out what will he be talking about at MadFest next week. Here it is. So here we are recording Uncensored CMO live from Cannes, and I'm joined by a returning guest. In fact, not once, not twice, but three times, Rory Sutherland. Welcome back. What a joy to be back. Yeah, I just can't stop coming. I know, exactly. We, We picked a reasonably decent venue for this as well absolutely well, there Fantastic. we go so how's your experience of can been so far um actually um a lot better than last year because last year i turned up got covid on day two and spent eight days in a hotel room without going out um so it was definitely better than last year but actually um better than most previous years i've enjoyed it for whatever reason a little bit more Possibly that's because, by contrast, simply by contrast with previous, you know, last year, it can't help be an improvement. I mean, it is, by the way, huge from what I understand. I understand the number of people is sort of 30,000 or so. It's a complete record. Those that made it across. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, notwithstanding various flight problems and so on. But um, uh, it's been tremendous. I mean, it, it, it always has that slightly surreal thing in that you often meet people in Cannes and establish proper relationships who are based in London. Yes. But weirdly, you have to go to a place in the south of France in order to actually well, my, get around my, to my, my theory is it's basically LinkedIn in real life. Yes, Because basically I'm going, yes. oh, I know you from LinkedIn. I've never met you, but I've seen you on LinkedIn. And I'm, it's like, oh, in fact, I went to the LinkedIn party and they gave us a little electronic thing. That, you know, of course, we were there, I weren't got you? got one. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Can, like, well, I think it might be you can literally recreate LinkedIn in, li- in real life. It's amazing. I mean, it, it, to some extent, of course, this is almost like the ultimate B2B networking opportunity, isn't it? Uh, by the way, I also think you guys in particular without blowing smoke up your ass, have done a good job of injecting a good serious backbone, as with people, organisations like the LinkedIn B2B Institute, for example. So I've I've been able to meet already Felix Oberholzer G from the Harvard Business School. I've met um, uh, one of my absolute heroes, which is Roger L. Martin, uh, the former dean of the Rotman Business School, who... Who, who, I recommend his books to absolutely everybody, by the way. As a, there's, the most recent one is called A New Way to Think. And he's probably the most marketing, creativity-friendly academic you could wish to meet. And there was there was a tendency sort of five, six years ago where... I've got nothing against Beyonce coming, right? But it was getting a little bit... Uh, don't, you know, I don't want to come across as some sort of tedious Puritan who goes, this should be a serious discussion of advertising effectiveness. But I like there to be, at the very least, a kind of framework of sort of serious discussion. I always think of something, I, I, as a client, I never got to go to Cannes. And, and I reckon if Cannes has sort of reinvented itself as a, a conference on creativity and the business impact it can have to, you know, I might have been able to justify it slightly more than, uh, than the than No, well, that, that, was the, that was the sort of image problem, which I think is being usefully counted. I mean, famously at Ogilvy, we had a, a, a managing director and I said, 
well, Louie, you're there for four days. Why don't you just take your husband down? He said, uh, my husband's a brain surgeon. If he thought this was where, where I worked, he said, uh, you know, we, 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 I'm not sure we'd have a relationship that would survive. And um, so I, I, I've been very, I, I, you know, totally impressed by that, I think, yeah. also. I think it's been really, really um, agreeable. And, and as I've got you here, why, why don't we see behavioural science awards at Cannes? Um, I'd like to think, I mean, I think one day we will. And by the way, I'm, it's a very good idea and I shall seek to encourage it. One thing I will praise uh, Can for, I've, I've got my criticisms as well. I don't want to come across as some sort of obsequious bum sucker here, OK? But where it led the way was solving this problem where the most interesting ideas quite often defy easy categorization for awards purposes. And there, I mean, when I when I first came into the industry, it was only TV and cinema. I think, wow. I think it might have started as only cinema, in fact. And then, of course, they've introduced press and outdoor and so forth. And then, undoubtedly, partly motivated by financial self-interest, but nonetheless welcome, they've effectively got enough categories so you don't have the problem. I think it was Sir John Hegarty who said that you know the most interesting work often defies, e defies easy categorization for awards purposes. And you could have that problem where there was a brilliant idea which kind of fell between two stools and therefore wasn't sufficiently recognised. I think I can remember that happening, this is going back a while, BMW Films, which were a series of films put on the internet, OK? Which, by the way, <laughs> I can look ridiculous now because all the people aged 20 are going, what the effing hell is he talking about? Obviously you put films on the internet. But at the time they got pretty serious film directors to make BMW-centred films, which were then downloaded. And that was a case where it wasn't necessarily recognised well because no-one knew which category to put it in. And then if you get chippy purists on the jury who go, no, it doesn't really belong here, you can end up with a problem that some of the most interesting work um, doesn't get recognised at all. Now, now, I feel like we're sitting next door to the room in which the titanium yeah. judging yeah. is taking place. And those categories, I think, are really, really important because... This is now a festival of creativity, not a festival of advertising. And it's absolutely vital that we say that, look, a good idea is a good idea, even if it doesn't involve kind of yeah. giving money to Rupert Murdoch in some shape or form. And so, you know, one of one of the Ogilvy ideas, which I'm most proud of, uh, which um, nothing to do with me, but uh, in Ogilvy, South Africa, the um, bread of the nation, where the agency working with nutritionists and facing... Initially, a little bit of reluctance from a client who said, look, we're brewers, not bakers, persuaded the people who make Castle Lager to find out ways of turning the leftover grain into bread, which now feeds, has now fed several million people. Now, that, if you like, is, you know, it's, it's only peripherally an advertising idea, if you like, although it doesn't do any harm to the reputation of AB InBev. Yeah. You know, it's really, really important. I, I'm always a Howell Henryite. I always think in British advertising there were two schools, which was the Let's Do Beautiful TV school, and there was the Howell Henryite school, which was Let's Just Rewrite the Rules of What Advertising Can Be. And coming from direct marketing, we were all Howell Henryites yeah, in a sense. Uh, so this awards thing is much, much better at recognising... Don't get me wrong, again, there's a huge place for fantastic craft, brilliant films, etc., but I think there's only one thing that worries me about this, and I ought to make that point, which is, are we in danger of, when we have an awards thing for creativity, of becoming very precious and saying, you know, there's, there's this rare thing called creativity, which when it's absolutely perfect, 
you know, is a wonderful, wonderful, precious, scarce thing. When actually my message is always actually every single person doing any job who has to make a decision has the opportunity yeah. to be creative. I, to- I totally, totally agree. I mean, I, I that's, that's the only I, thing that worries me. That is, that I, I you associate creativity <clears throat> with what you might call the icing on the cake. Yes. It's, it's the definition between the creative yeah, and yeah. creativity, isn't it? Yes. I think we get that confused. I was talking to Kev Chester, and we were talking about that he, he wrote a book called Creative Nudge. Absolutely yes. wonderful book. Yeah. And uh, just in preparation for talking to him, I thought, I'll write down my five most creative moments. Mm-hmm. Only one of them involved an advert. Yes. Uh, and it was the fifth one. The top four involved solving complicated, challenging business problems with, with, a, with a surprising idea that led to amazing results sort of thing. But it's... it's it, it, it's, it, it's a definitely, you know, we need well, to... What excites me about behavioural science is because it doesn't involve a media budget necessarily. It also doesn't have a high barrier to entry. And what fascinates me is, you know, having written the book, Alchemy, I keep getting people come to me and say, something you wrote in Alchemy, I, ha- I had to negotiate, you know, a, 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 a pay rise or whatever it was for, you know, a group of 20,000 people. And something you suggested in Alchemy saved me one and a half million pounds a year. And, and I'll, I'll give you a lovely example of this. I met someone um, who was head of partnerships at one of the UN agencies. And the way I describe creativity is that creativity is very simple. It's when you take a logical idea, something that makes sense, that will never get you fired, that's totally acceptable, that may even be enshrined as best practice, and you say, yeah, that's fine, but can we do better than that? In other words, you ask the question that doesn't have to be asked because you'll keep your job, you'll be absolutely fine doing whatever it is, you know, is what you might call the logical, totally intuitive, sensible, in line with economic theory approach. But you go, I'm not sure that's the best we can do. And there's someone who has given a a delivery of a donation of a huge number of crocs. (laughs) And... Now, the logical thing to do would be to go and develop some mechanism for finding out where there was the greatest shortage of shoes uh, in parts of Africa or, indeed, the parts of Africa where wearing shoes might make the best difference to health. Perfectly rational thing to do. I I did say at that point, well, that's great because, of course, (laughs) uh, Crocs are an unbelievably effective contraceptive because it's impossible (laughs) to come even vaguely aroused in the presence of anybody wearing Crocs. She said, no, 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 these are for children. I said, "Okay, sorry, Okay, I got that wrong. So I, I, but then she said what she'd ended up doing was uh, donating them to schools. And the schools were told when kids turn up on their first day of school, give them a pair of Crocs. And of course, the kids would then go home and their other friends would go, Where did you get those yeah. things? They go, school. You get it at school. So she used it not only to solve the shoelessness problem, but to solve the education problem as well. And so suddenly you got people who are turning up on day two or day three of school and therefore establishing the habit. So that that kind of that, that my point about that is we have to be able to award ideas like yeah. that. We can't just confine it to yeah. people who have some, you know, half a million pound production budget. And with behavioral science, of course, the yeah. joy of it is you often need literally it's a game anyone can play. And that 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 was what was interesting about my list, because the top ideas involved almost no budget no. as well. And and I think here it'd be amazing to have kind of the creative awards where there was no, no money, no no media budget. Because that that because again you know when you have got a lot of money you can afford to do some bold groundbreaking kind of creative techniques but if you've got no budget no and actually actually you know it would be great to recognise you know for example uh, I mean not fashionable but I don't suppose a call centre script has ever won at Cannes <laughs> but actually in terms of yeah. business effects. Yeah. 
you know, a really creative optimization of a call center script can be totally transformational. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very keen to... to uh, one of the things with behavioral science, they're, they're, in a way, of course, I think the most important thing to do with it is to teach it rather than to practice it. Because in economic terms, simply giving people permission to think differently, which behavioral science does, simply giving them permission to say, look, actually, if you demand that everything you do as a business makes sense in advance, you're massively limiting the solution set. Roger Martin is very good on this. You Effectively, most businesses demand evidence from the past to support activity in the future. But, of course, all big data is inherently biased by dint of deriving from a period of time which no where some of the rules may no longer apply. That's not a problem in physics, because the laws of gravity don't change. But the laws of psychology are highly manipulable, and they change, fashions change all the time. But isn't this exactly the problem with ChatGPT? Because what you get from ChatGPT is, is, is a default to what's happened in the past, right? By definition, yeah. you kill originality. Uh, yeah, and also, also it probably... Well, I think there might be a solution to this, and I don't know enough. Unfortunately, I don't, I, I'm, but I'm just p- punting this out. Some of the most interesting scientists argue that, what, and, and actually Mark Ritson says of marketing, the average is the enemy of the marketer, okay? And what you're doing with chat GPT to some extent is you're averaging what you might call accepted or received opinion. And the, in scientific discovery, and I would argue in creativity, what you're often looking for is the outlier, not the average. You know, all the stuff that's bunched together, forget about that, go and look at the weird thing that's, you know, at the top right quadrant and look at that and go, what is going on here? And I think we, what we want as creatives may be artificial inquisitiveness, not artificial intelligence. It does slightly bother me as well that so much focus is on AI and creativity And I've always got this slight suspicion that what that will ultimately mean, even though it's not the best thing to do, is that you reduce creative headcount on the basis that you've now automated it and that the investment in technology replaces investment in salary, which has been the slightly painful drive. It's what I call the Dorman fallacy. You know, define a person's role very narrowly, replace it with an algorithm, claim that you've saved money, which has been the kind of dirty game plan of the tech industry, I think. When in many cases, we we were talking about this yesterday, actually, it it is the human connection that is part of what the business offers. You know, an integral part of a business's value creation is that there's a person you can talk to who answers the phone. And that's probably, you know, that's probably just going to be inescapable for businesses. And they they need to get real about this because otherwise this quest for endless automation is problematic. Now, my argument would be that if this makes creative people more powerful, you should have then for more of them. Secondly, the lesson from chess is that the best chess player is not a computer or a human. It's a human aided by a computer. So the sort of hybrid model where creatives use AI in some shape or form or artificial inquisitiveness, even better, to seek inspiration. That's very interesting because actually, uh, system one, we've tested two different things uh, using using ChatGPT. We we created a pizza commercial, and we then compared it to every pizza commercial on our database. It was exactly average. I mean, it was two point nine versus two point nine. It had the cheese on it. It had the you know it had the you know, it, it was it was 
It's I, essentially it was, derivative. It isn't was it? completely yeah. derivative. Mm. It could be any brand you want to mention. It was, and you know, pizza, pizza advertising is in of itself quite attractive, but it couldn't go beyond that. Equally, we also tested. Um, there was you might remember this. Nike did a collaboration with Tiffany and launched some Tiffany trainers. I remember this. You do remember that. And uh, so again, I fed I fed uh, Chat uh, by GPT. The way, with by that. the way, new awards category for brand partnerships. Yes. Yes, yes, because, yes. Um, I would agree, again, this is... Um, uh, Ritson gave me the confidence to say this, because I've always instinctively felt that brand partnerships are almost the first point port of call. In other words, before we start spending money, are there some people who... where symbiotically we can team up to solve a problem together rather than spending money on a, you know, on a supplier-purchaser relationship? And great brand partnerships, I think, are absolutely... I couldn't agree more. And, and particularly as a challenger brand or a brand trying to establish yourself, you can cut through, grow your audience. It's borrowed media. It's incredibly powerful. WPP has yeah. this company called Mando Connect, which is, as far as I know, pretty much the only partnerships sort of agency in Britain. And I, I absolutely adore these people. I go there as a kind of first port of call because it's it's such an overlooked solution, which is... You know, it's a bit like to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and to a man with a checkbook, everything looks like a kind of, you know, a, you know, a spending solution. And the the partnerships idea is 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 just really really rich. But no, exactly that point you make. And on on the, the interesting thing with the Tiffany thing, which I think builds on your point perfectly, is that uh, we actually managed to beat the Nike Tiffany trainer in. Des- we tested the design with with the general public, and what AI was able to do is make a better execution of the original idea so this is where i think the iterative bit comes from so coming up we know nike wouldn't sorry ai wouldn't have invented that creative idea but having got the idea it spun out loads of different ways of executing it which we put into test and we're able to see which one works so that i think as a tool by by the way i mean actually ai will have a certain value when it's wrong because interestingly wrong can be important and I, I always talk, talk about the fact that uh, Steve Dunn, the, who was the creative director of Ogilvy some years ago, the greatest campaign he ever did, which was absolutely art-directed in a masterly way, as you'd imagine. And he actually explained that uh, it was down to a f- faulty um, photocopier. The account man had come back with photocopies, photocopies of the initial layout and profusely full of apologies, said, I'm sorry about this, this crappy photocopier. It puts these horizontal lines in the thing and I can't get it to stop doing it. And Steve Dunn um, basically said, but this looks marvellous, you see. And, um, uh, and, and that's, that's the famous story, by yeah. the way, with um, Kubrick, and I love this, uh, uh, 1999, okay, um, where... The model maker had put the Strauss waltz over the initial film of the rotating space um, stations, okay, and was unbelievably apologetic. He said, look, it just needs some music because it looks terrible if it's silent. And I I just grabbed the first cassette I could find, and it's terrible, Stanley. I'm really sorry, Stanley, but it was the first music. It was the only music I had to hand, you know, and, you know, I know know you composed a special score for this. And Kubrick just sat back and said, they're going to call me a genius. (laughs) And so simply in accelerating serendipity, you know, in, oh, I never thought of that, I mean, I argue this about behavioural science, that actually some, sometimes the, the value of behavioural science is that it's right. In other words, we're right for the right reasons. Sometimes the value of behavioural science is that it encourages you to do something which is right for the wrong reasons, but it doesn't matter because you've now discovered a better way of doing something. You know, the, if, if it gives you permission to test the counterintuitive, then in a sense, it has a value in itself. 
I mean, you know, one of the most common things I say is, you know, price, you know, before you, you know, try putting the price up. If you've got a product that's not selling, before you immediately leap to discounting, try putting the price up. And so if it encourages people to think more widely about what they should be testing, then even if the ultimate sort of skeleton of logic may not actually be correct in this case, it's still valid. You're going to get all that feedback, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. absolutely well, right. I'd love to know um, what you think of the new Apple Vision as well, which seems to have come out. I, that, that's a fascinating. What's your uh, take on that? I, I'm a big fan of the, uh, I don't know if you've seen Scott Galloway's yes, I read take, that, yeah. which was the most interesting take. And the argument is that it's a bit like Larry's Latte. It's a spite store because whatever Meta does in this area now, they can't effectively out Apple Apple and will always be an also-ran player, so that it's a kind of defensive moat against the 10% chance. It's a little like buying the same lottery numbers as your worst enemy and then buying 10 tickets, which is I probably won't actually win here, but at least, you know, this guy is in with much more chance. Right. And um, that's that's a very interesting theory of Galloway's. the thing that really <laughs> I'm an Android user. I'm also a Chromebook user, which is practically akin to paedophilia. If you work in the uh, uh, in the marketing services industry, you know, taking out your Android phone, big Samsung fan, etc. The thing, um, but all my both my children and my wife have Apple devices, and the thing that drives me insane is the cost of replacement effing cables. So the thing I really want to know about this device is not whether it costs three and a half thousand dollars, but how much the replacement charging cable cost? Because yeah. that, that's your real cost of use with Apple devices. The thing I thought was interesting in Scott's book was is creating isolation when, in fact, we've just been through a pandemic, we're just coping with, you know, the societal impact of being isolated. So there is another school of thought with it which says this is brilliant, but it's not what the world needs. Yeah. What the world does not need is a kind of wally existence where we're all, you know, effectively in our own self-created pods. There is, I agree, I think, with Scott's, because I've always made this point that if you lose peripheral vision, well, particularly if you're wearing a device which says, I've just bought a gadget for three and a half, it's a bit like those people, it's a bit like those people who have Louis Vuitton steamer trunks, which every time they go through an airport, it basically says, rob me, you know, and, um, uh, so I've always I've always wondered, you know, are people comfortable sitting in a train with no peripheral vision? Is there just a million years of evolution which go, I can now be attacked and people can steal my shit because I can't sufficiently see or hear the surrounding world? And I do notice I've got a pair of um, a very good Sony noise-cancelling headphones. I do notice that there is a limit to the length of time in which it's comfortable to be cocooned in the extent that after about 30 to 40 minutes, now maybe that's because I'm old, okay? Uh, it's also because I, I can't make in-ear pods work for me. I don't, I don't know if you're the same. No, that business of having just sticking things, can't make it work. Well, I, I, I love them, but I've had to buy five pairs because I, I keep losing them. Mm. I keep losing one and I forget to put the tracking on. But same with you. I've got the Bose noise-cancelling ones and I've almost... Stepped, I love it. I've I think ste- it's fantastic when I put it on. The experience is incredible, but I've stepped out in front of cars already. Gone, no. Holy... Because Shit. you're no, just no, no, literally absolutely. so used to your peripheral vision kicking in to warn you that there's a car coming. So that's the, that's the so, risk. I mean, I think Scott was a tiny bit cynical. I'm sure, by the way, the initial experience, without having experienced it myself, is utterly brilliant and amazing. The price point is an obstacle because the great fear you have is that we all know the same thing, OK? 
basically, I would say there are air fryers and there are yogurt makers. And it's very difficult to tell when you actually first buy something with the initial buzz of enthusiasm, whether the thing's going to be what you might call, whether it, it fundamentally just changes your preferences and expectations, air fryer, so that you end up using it, well, at the very least, sort of five times a week, okay? Or there's the yogurt maker where after the initial novelty has worn off, you just go... What's wrong with buying yogurt? Yeah, it's in a like shop. bread makers as well. Isn't well actually, it? my dad yeah. is actually a devotee of his bread maker, but um, he's retired. You know, he's 90, 92. So, so th- 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 I think bread makers, f- depending on temperament and amount of spare time, fall on the cusp there. Actually, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to diss the whole Japanese toilets. Undoubtedly, fall yes. on the air fryer side of the spectrum. Yeah. But it is very interesting. Electric cars, I think, do as well, by the way. And this is a significant point, because what we should be looking at statistically as good marketers isn't the growth of electric cars in penetration terms. It's when people buy an electric car, do they ever go back? You know, it's a bit, you remember that Sky slogan, no turning back, which was very true because multi-channel TV, Brits really didn't want it. What's wrong with four channels? But once you had it, there was no way you could go back. And it's true. Every EV owner I know just talks about how amazing it is. Yeah. And honestly, they say exactly that. You won't go back once you've you gone. You wouldn't go back. It's hard to explain why, by the way, mm. but something about the... Something about the experience... I mean, it, it, a little bit of it's environmental, that actually having driven around producing no emissions, perhaps going back into a car which is farting out of its rear end just feels a little bit wrong. I don't think that's the principal reason. I think it's something to do with the driving dynamics. The, the main thing people said to me is, is, is acceleration. It's just the mm. instant acceleration just feels well, uh, good. The other yeah. one is silence, which is yes. it, 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 it drives like a go-kart when you want a go-kart, but it's a limo when you want a limo. And so I've got the Mustang Mach-E, which I can absolutely thoroughly recommend. It's absolutely fantastic car. And um, I, uh, I, I couldn't go back. And what is interesting is talking to the marketing director of Skoda. They're saying that they were getting people effectively replacing Jaguars and Audis and BMWs with electric Skodas, which you wouldn't have, they, they didn't foresee it. Yeah. But in a sense, an electric car is kind of a luxury car and a supercar if you want it when you want it to be. And so I think there is something about that. You're right, the acceleration. And actually, of course, the metrics are wrong. because Okay, the 0 to 60 acceleration is amazing. What's really amazing is the 0 to 20 acceleration, so that if you find yourself in the wrong lane and you need to nip in front of the person to your left, you know, your freedom to do that kind of thing is, is fantastic. And, and, of course, as a good behavioural scientist, never, ever discount convenience and general laziness, which is one-pedal driving, which is like... Driving an automatic squared. That's an interesting one, by the way. Um, all, all Europeans affect to disdain automatic transmission, but nobody who experiences it really... Oh, don't get me wrong. If, if I lived in the north of Scotland on the A9, right, and I had glorious winding roads where I could double D-clutch and, you know... <laughs> uh, you know. But most of my driving living in the southeast of England is either motorway or stuck in traffic, OK? And once you've experienced an automatic... And you realise that actually in 80% of driving situations, it's either the same or better. Again, most people, I think, don't go back. But the problem is, I, I always thought Google should have persisted with Google Glass. I would have, you know, there would have been, if they if they kept that on the market for another few years, I would have ended up pissed at an airport and I would have bought a set, you know, just to cheer myself up. Uh, because a £1,000 is just about the amount that... You know, admittedly, you know, gratuitously rich and self-indulgent people will spend on a punt. Three and a half thousand 
or I guess it'll be what, I don't know, 3,100, no, actually it'll be three and a half thousand pounds, won't it? Because yeah. for some reason in tech, the uh, the dollar sterling exchange dollar rate is one one. 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 Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right, OK. But I, 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 it's a hell of a risk for something that could end up effectively in the, uh, you know, in the kind of um, back cupboard of your tech collection. It'd be one of those things in 20 years' time where the memes be going around. If you remember this, you must have been born in 1990. Sort of <laughs> <laughs> also, of course, it's worth remembering that people... We remember, in fact, twice in my life, there's been a brief craze for 3D TV or cinema, which has then dissipated. And actually... Now, here's an interesting question, OK? What I would buy it for is pure productivity, particularly as an oldie with declining eyesight, OK? A device that plugs into your laptop that basically gives you, retains your peripheral vision, perhaps, OK? Maybe even doesn't have sound. That would probably be silly, but but gives you effectively the equivalent of a 65-inch screen on which you can work, OK? Without having to plug in anything. I can just about see myself... I don't think the 3D-ness is necessary. I think it's a case of, um, you know, it's, it's a case of why do dogs lick their own balls? because they can, OK? You're producing a, you know, a, a stereoscopic device, therefore you make it 3D, OK? Actually, I mean, I, I, this is particularly pertinent because I had a detached retina a few months ago, and so I effectively had monocular vision for a time. And monocular vision, for most purposes, isn't that bad, OK? We watch films in 2D. We don't, pro we don't process films in 2D because our brain provides the depth. You know, was it Bruce, who was it? Was it Bruschelleschi or whatever? But I mean, Italian artists worked out perspective, okay? And perspective is a good enough brain hack for allowing the brain to look at something in 2D and effectively perceive it as though it were in 3D, okay? When I go to a performance of Hamlet, to some extent, I want the director's view from the, you know, from the audience. I don't want to hover around yes. looking at, you know, looking at the, the, the whole thing from. Uh, you know, uh, you know, inside the skull. Okay, right. I don't actually want to hover around the stage. I want the director to tell me where to look. Yeah. And so with three D, I'm, as I said, I've never looked at a fantastic sunset and then closed one eye and thought, oh, now it's totally shit. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure, and I'm not sure the three D thing may not make it contribute to making it tiring. We do know for sure, right, that people watch three hour films or indeed, in my case, a nine-hour Narcos binge. I, I was so keen on Narcos that Netflix actually decided I was Spanish and started <laughs> serving me up Mexican, effectively Mexican dramas wall-to-wall. -wall. Um, but we know we can watch 2D in certain circumstances. We know we can watch that for, you know, three hours, four hours at a stretch. The number of cases where people are actually happy being in a kind of sensory deprivation experience in a way cut off from your fellow man for more than 30 minutes. And it was interesting that when Apple trialled the device, everybody was limited to about 25 minutes. Now, I wonder if they knew what they were doing. Quite possibly. Yeah. Um, I really want to come and ask you about MadFest, because you and I are going to be at MadFest in a couple Absolutely. of weeks. It's coming, up, coming, coming around very shortly. One of the really cool festivals, isn't it? I mean, great speakers, brilliant, great brilliant energy. Idea and brilliant business model. Yeah. So, in other words, you know, the, the guests, the clients attend for free, the exhibitors pay. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely masterful absolutely business brilliant. model. Yeah. And you, you've set up Mad Masters as well. Mm. Tell me a bit about Mad Masters and how that's going. So my view is that we're talking a lot here about AI and we're talking a lot here less, less than, mercifully less than I 
feared about the metaverse, because that, that seems to have died down a little bit now, that obsession, which is kind of interesting in itself, isn't it? Yeah. That actually, you know, uh, AI NFTs is, still, is well. still being, yeah. you know, NFTs, you yeah. know, even just about drone delivery. Yeah. I mean, it's worth noting that, you know, Cannes has every year, it has the kind of hyped yeah. um, thing. I think the most important thing, particularly actually in things like B2B, but actually in every context, the most important technology of the last five years is video conferencing and web and webinars. Because, not because the technology, although the technology did get progressively better, what really changed during COVID was that everybody had a crash course in using it. And it is no longer excusable to be shit joining a Zoom call, okay? In effect, the quality of any kind of Zoom call was always determined by the worst participant, the most Luddite participant. And by giving the world a kind of crash course in this technology, we now have, I mean, literally, we now have a world where there must be, of necessity, millions of conversations taking place every day which would not have happened had they required air travel, Okay. Or have they actually required a train journey or a short drive in some yeah. cases? Okay, the fact that without permission from the finance director, you can meet anybody you damn well please for an hour by clicking a button without even putting trousers on. Okay, big tip by the way. I always found cardigan over pajamas. Okay, that was that was always the best one for the first the first call of the day. Um, that just about had plausible deniability. But that has to be, in economic terms, the most important thing. The fact that conversations... If you look at, say, business, one of the problems in business is there was a yawning gap between what you might call awareness and a full-blown meeting, OK? And there wasn't really a technology, not really the phone call, not really the letter, lover of direct marketing though I may be, that actually was a halfway house between these two states, and so I think the on-ramp, the gateway drug to physical meetings that is the, the, the Zoom call is hugely important just in terms of innovations we'll start to see without necessarily attributing it as a consequence of this. Now, I, 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 I repeatedly say to Ogilvy, OK, we should be, every time there's an Exco meeting, we should spend 10 or 20 minutes at minimum discussing what are the implications for Ogilvy, the way we deliver advertising, the way we do advertising, the way we work together. We believe in, uh, we practice a thing called borderless creativity. And what could be actually a better enabler of this? Um, during lockdown, there was a fantastic yeah. Dove campaign produced by an Anglo-Canadian team. Now, I don't think it would have happened pre-lockdown because, some, you know, what would have happened is... Um, so, first of all, it would have cost £25,000 in flights. Secondly, there would have been, you know, someone would have said, no, I can't come over that week because it's my daughter's graduation. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know. And in, in the end, of course, you know, time zone notwithstanding, a group of people from both countries collaborated perfectly effectively uh, across an ocean. Now, I, I think, and I, I rant about this, the reason people don't do it is because the technology is only tw 20 years old. And so raving about a 25-year-old technology makes you look like an idiot, like the guy on The Fast Show who used to go around going, isn't electricity brilliant, right? OK, you feel like a bit of a twit, you know. It's amazing, like, I, I just flick this switch and, and all the lights come on. But, of course, electricity is brilliant, and electricity, it took 20 to 25 years, actually a bit more, if anything, 30 to 35 years, for electrification to finally deliver on its promised benefits. They started off basically just replacing big steam engines with enormous electric motors. 
didn't really make much difference. In fact, it was arguably worse. It was only when they realised, no, 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 you can distribute this and have lots of little electric motors all over the place in factories that the gains were delivered. I would argue that the gains to video conferencing uh, have just taken 20 years and a pandemic to be realised. But the reason I'm doing Mad Masters is very, very, very same reason I'm doing this, OK? Occasionally, account people go to me. By the way, a very mischievous joke I made yesterday, which didn't go down well on the on the um, WPP beach, which is what I'm really looking forward to from AI is actually reducing the amount of money we have to spend on client service by creating digital twins of, of client service people so we can spend more money on creative people. Yeah. I, and, and I added the joke, which is, unfortunately, for that to happen, we'll have to wait for small talk GPT to come out in 2024. <laughs> how, many, how many better briefings? Well, yeah. yeah. Account yeah. man AI, yeah. which goes, you know, so um, we went to Tuscany last year, yeah. so we thought it was time to try Umbria. <laughs> <That's brilliant. laughs> anyway, that, that didn't go down no. storm, trust me. Um, but it does worry me that actually, you know, we're kind of looking at this technology as a way to kind of reduce creative headcount, which is the natural tendency of businesses, which, as we all know, are all run by HR and finance yeah. anyway. Well, the- theoretically, it should take out the, the shit stuff we don't want to do. Like, yeah, and then put, put invest. Just to reiterate on this, uh, the reason I'm, I'm very keen to do Mad Masters is I think that the ratio of one-to-one to teaching in the way we deliver creativity, has to change. And the reason I'm doing this podcast, just to explain, is very simple. I don't know who the audience is, OK? I'm no clue. I don't even know the size of the audience. And my argument is, if I spend an hour of my time talking to 100 people, it is, by definition, more valuable than talking to people one at a time. And so anything you can do that exploits network effects, you should do it. And I would also argue that, actually, the this is why I'm a complete devotee of people like Dave Trott, actually the most valuable thing you can do as a creative person is not to do it, it's to teach it. In fact, you know, I'm a little bit of an economist and I always ask the question, yes, nice, but what's the ultimate economic value created by by this activity? And it seems to me inescapable that teaching people to think differently, because if you've got, you know, let's say you end up with... Let's say we end up with 20,000 alumni of the Mad Masters course and each of those people just tries something different or is inspired to look elsewhere once or twice a year as a consequence of attending that course. Then the value of that compared to the the standard advertising agency model is we create a monopsony over our own... We give our clients a monopsony because we're not allowed conflict, Okay. Generally, the account man is terrified of going above the person they talk to, typically the marketing director, because they're frightened of prejudicing their relationship. And so you you place the account man in this very perilous role where his or her career becomes overly dependent on the whims of one person, which then makes them nervous and less experimental. And I think we I think as a business, if we don't have network effects, we can't really make money going forward. You know, we uh, so you've got a business in the creative agency now. Very low barriers to entry because you no longer have media as part of the mix, uh, and you also have the problem that what we do is solve once, sell once, or solve once, sell three quarters of the time. And my view is the way of delivering and selling creativity. It's simply not generating enough of it. You know, that's my that, as, I, as I to reiterate. That's my one concern about having an awards do about creativity, which is it creates this idea that there's this glorious, glorious kind of shining B 
beacon at the at the very summit of creativity, which counts, which is great and it's wonderful and it's creative and it's so wonderful. Oh God, it's so gorgeous. Okay, and then everything kind of on the foothills is a waste of time. And my view, my view is that I, I'm I'm in favour of even crap creativity. Okay, the person who I'll, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, how do you stop people nicking stuff from a van? Okay, and the standard sign, we're talking to a police force, and it said, no tools kept in van overnight. And we said, just a tip, okay? And uh, they had already had the idea, but they felt silly saying it, which say, says basically, you know, this van contains two empty fag packets, you know, uh -huh. a three-month-old copy of The Sun, you know, uh, 14 screws, two bolts, but no tools. Okay, just 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 simply, you know, yeah. tiny, you know, every time you just go, there's the obvious solution, but there's a more interesting solution. Either it's as good and more interesting, or it's actually uh, better. Surprising, isn't it? Or surprising, yeah, yeah, it stands okay. out. Every time you do that, you, you're a hero in my book. Yeah. You know, every time someone just basically goes, you know, at least. Maybe, by the way, you go off the rails, explore something creatively, and decide, no, 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 the boring approach is right. That's fine too. Okay, at least you've kind of, at least you've done a kind of, you know, stress test. Is there a better idea? Yeah. That's all we need, and and that that's the only thing that worries me about this awards events. That it it it's again portraying something as kind of rare and precious and incredibly unusual, which agencies all have to do, of course, to justify. Uh, in a sense, their existence and their fees. Yeah. But actually, what we should be doing, this is why I've done, I'm very, very keen to do Mad Masters, is just to go, no, no, no we can do this everywhere. Yeah, create the network effects, yeah. creativity. Well, Rory, I'd love to keep talking because the, 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 there's so much I'd love to keep talking about. We, we've got to bring it to an end, but thank you so much and uh, very much looking forward to seeing you again in Mad Masters in a couple Absolute of weeks. Absolute joy. Um, and also, I'll just do a plug for Nudgestock, which is the yes. day after wow. Madfest. It's the July the 7th. Yep. If you go to nudgestock.com, you can register. And it's both a physical and online festival of behavioural science. Perfect. Brilliant. Rory, thank you so Fantastic. much. Fantastic. Great thank to see you. you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was our Madfest edition with none other than Rory Sutherland. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, we have another Madfest special coming up with Tom Rainsford, who is the marketing director at Beavertown, one of the coolest beers out there. Amazing success story of how craft beer took on the industry giants. Uh, so listen out for that. In the meantime, if you'd like to never miss an episode again, please do hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're watching, go to YouTube, hit subscribe there too. And you can follow me at CMO uh, on Twitter or at LinkedIn under John Evans. Thanks for watching and listening.